Hello, it's Monday, December the 20th, and this is The Andrew Pearce Show, coming as ever from the Daily Mail newsroom. Coming up... Robin Hood, you thought he was born in Nottingham. Well, apparently, a new book says he's a Yorkshireman. Britain's junk food intake is the second highest in Europe, only behind Sweden. No wonder so many of us, not me, that is, are obese. Covid. Should there be more restrictions over the holiday period? I'm speaking to a leading virologist. But first, question marks continue over Boris Johnson's leadership, especially after the debark of losing one of their safest seats in that by-election last week. So the cabinet was due to meet today, but the meeting was in fact postponed because of scheduling reasons. It was thought that the prime minister may be talking about even more restrictions to do with COVID uh, around Christmas or perhaps even in the new year. But if he was to try to bring in more restrictions, would the Tory party put up with it? Ian Duncan Smith is a senior Tory MP, former leader of the party and joins me now. Uh, Sir Ian, could he, I mean, the mood of the party was so demonstrated by the scale of that rebellion last week, 9,900 MPs voting against the Prime Minister. If more restrictions were brought in, I suspect the revolt would be even bigger. Well, let's just take a pace back from revolt to reality, which is the way I would like to think it. There are two, the problem we've got right now is it seems to me a group of scientists at SAGE are now engaged in what I call groupthink. Maybe because they're worried about what's coming down the tracks about whether we did the right decisions or not. But the one thing that we're getting here is we're not getting facts. What we're getting is suppositions from SAGE. So uh, you get the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine produce this look at it, and they use a valuation as to the uh, potency of uh, this new South African variant Uh, But what they've done is actually they've used the potency at the same level as Delta. All the evidence coming out of South Africa today, for example, shows deaths collapsing. Uh, And that's because it's now widely seen as much less potent uh, than the Delta variant. More infectious, but less potent, which means fewer people like to go to hospital. Now, big question marks as to why they're therefore making uh, the supposition that it's as powerful as Delta. That creates a huge ripple effect through their forecasts, makes them much worse than many think they should be. And there's no balancing factor, for example, in things like the economics, or even here in schooling. The last lockdown literally punched a hole through uh, kids in, 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 from the low-income backgrounds particularly, who have had a trashed education over that period. The results are shocking, came from a Centre for Social Justice uh, uh, report on this, and said basically that um, disabilities now face an 18-month GCSE gap plus the the lockdown problems, which is a disaster for them, and they may never recover it. Balance of economics, balance of jobs, balance of those who are self-isolating, balance of children's education. Where is all of this balance and the facts? Where are the facts about what it actually does rather than what it could do in the worst circumstances? This is where a decision can be made, and only then. And so I do hope that they don't do this because nobody really believes that we are making decisions based on facts. We seem to be making decisions based on suppositions and extrapolations. 
And it's interesting, isn't it? Because I can't remember the last time the chance of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, was involved in any of these Downing Street briefings to do with COVID. And yet he's, he ought to have a huge say in all of this, because as you say, Sirian, you've got to balance the, the interests of health and wealth. Absolutely. And that, that is actually the, criti- <clears throat> the critical factor, because um, if you look at the, uh, what's going on, I was listening to Carl Hennigan, Professor Carl Hennigan. Mm. He was fascinating. He said, we are in danger of locking down every winter now because we are testing more and we know more about respiratory infections. And so immediately we lock down with any possible threat to the health service. But every winter, if there's a flu crisis, then the health service is really heavily overstretched. But we don't lock down in the past when that's the case. We try and find ways to ameliorate it and to resolve it. And here's the other bit he made. You know, we compare what's going on at the moment. Oh, you know, we're having infection rates at the level of, of, uh, of uh, January this year. You know, it's going to be terrible. Hang on. We have vaccinations. That's right. We were told once vaccinated that we would be able to resist this. In January, we weren't vaccinated. We are now at least almost all with two doses, and we're on our way to getting most, if not all, people vaccinated with three doses. Where is this factored into the equation? Mm. Not at all. We seem to be uh, guilty of saying it can only be worse, even if we've ameliorated. And by the way, today, I see the NHS has now releasing the antiviral treatment, which is a pill that you take, which suppresses all of the, uh, the effect of uh, uh, Ovagom of and uh, all the COVID effects. And, and essentially means you're less, far less likely to be very ill, far less likely to go to hospital, and therefore far less likely to die. So this plus the vaccines, where is all that factored into this? Not apparently at all. We have to only make decisions because there's such a balance of downsides Mm. of increasing the lockdown, shutting down businesses. All of these are big decisions that will destroy lives and livelihoods. There has to be balance, and I don't feel that government is getting seriously well-balanced Uh, facts they're getting suppositions by one side of the equation and isn't that presumably why the government lost the services of a very fine minister lord frost who we know was very unhappy about covid restrictions we know also he's very unhappy about the green agenda of the government and not least the fact that taxes are going up too but first and foremost he said he does not approve approve of um, of plan b and all these covid restrictions and the impact it's having on the economy well, that's exactly the point. Uh, the point is that that uh, we 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 forget that the economy is what pays everybody uh, and pays our taxes. Uh, it's what governments spend money and borrow. How are we going to pay this off if businesses are closing and won't properly open again? I mean, this is not the first time around a lockdown. If we no. head down this road again, it's the third time we will do this. We are literally in danger of being frightened of our own shadows at the moment. People, may, and Carl Hennigan made this point very clearly, we must trust people to make decisions. You know, if you've got a vulnerable relative mm. who has all sorts of complications, well then behave accordingly with them. Right. Be careful. You know, don't do all the things that you might normally do with others. You know, be careful about them. People are making those decisions now. We have to behave like adults and be treated like adults. You know, after all, you know, we make risk valuations every day of our lives, crossing the road without going across at a zebra crossing, you know, doing all sorts of things, riding motorcycles, you know, flying, 
uh, people going out and hang gliding. All these things are value judgments that we make on a daily basis. Yes, risk is part of our lives. We balance risk against what we think are the outcomes, and that's what we do. So with the right advice and the right nudge, people will go in the right direction. But honestly, the idea that at every given circumstance, we must automatically go to complete closure or really emasculating our businesses makes me really concerned. If the whole free world does this, it is only the dictatorships that benefit. And we are in a serious, serious problem with Russia and China and Belarus who are gaining every time we emasculate our economies. We've got to get some balance in all of this. And that's my big worry is the advice going to government at the moment I don't believe is balanced and I don't believe covers all of the elements of risk that we are likely to, uh, to engage. Well said. That's Ian Duncan-Smith, the Conservative MP and former leader of the party. Visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pearce Show for free and in full, along with all our podcasts and our video series. And don't forget to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. So a new study from Imperial College London has found even those who are double jabbed can have an increased risk of developing a symptomatic Omicron case compared with the Delta variant. Modelling from the study has found that even in a best case scenario, there could be 3,000 hospitalisations at the peak in January unless there are further curbs introduced by the government. Paul Hunter is Professor of Medicine at the University of East Anglia and he joins me now. Professor, there are modelling, there's modelling and there's studies. Uh, What's your view? I mean, how concerned are you about the growth in the Omicron variant? Well, you know, it, it, it is very difficult at the moment, but clearly Omicron is doubling very quickly at present in the UK, uh, less than, du- doubling in less than two days. And you don't need to be a mathematician to work out that, you know, by the end of the year, if it continues at that, we would have pretty much everybody in, in the UK infected. But, you know, it, uh, that uh, can't happen that is physically impossible so at some point and some point soon this rapid rate of doubling does have to slow the issue though clearly is whether it slows fast enough to avoid big pressure on the health service and that's the big question at the moment the booster jab rollout is going um, pretty well, nearly a million the other yeah. day. So that's almost in line with the government's expectations. Do you think that the, the booster jab can keep pace with the growth in Omicron? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that in terms of actually reducing the spread of Omicron, yes, it's going to have some impact. Um, but um, there are clearly a lot of people, even by the end of the year, who won't yet have had their booster vaccine. Many of them will actually have had COVID and been had their first round of vaccine, and that will probably provide roughly similar protection. But I think what, the, what we are pretty sure about is that the booster vaccine will reduce the risk that somebody who gets infected will become ill enough to need to go into hospital. And actually, although we're still, you know, only about um, still less than or pretty close to a half of adults have had the booster vaccine, the vast majority, the large majority of people who are particularly vulnerable, those with pre-existing health conditions and, and people over 60, have now had the booster and will be having uh, considerable protection against severe disease. 
What of the idea of more restrictions, Professor? Are you in the? Are you one of those who thinks the government has to do more to um, restrict, uh, to restrict our, our travel? Uh, whether we, um, I mean, they've already the advice is to work from home, but it's just guidance. Do you think they need to go further? You know, I'm I'm really struggling on this. I've um, flipped and flopped for the last two days in my in my take on what should happen next, and it's not very. Uh, easy decision to to take. Clearly, if we strengthened the uh, control measures, that would uh, have some impact on reducing the increase in cases. But ultimately, (laughs) many of the people who are going to get infected without uh, restrictions in the next few days would probably get infected somewhat later. And, And so the balance really is do we need to reduce the spike, but at the risk of increasing the duration of the um, epidemic? Because you know, control, uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions like social distancing, lockdowns, off rarely stop infections. They only really delay them. And, and so is it in our interest to reduce the peak, but at the risk that we will have uh, a longer uh, duration of this spike? Or um, is it better that we uh, get through it and then get over it more quickly? And that's, that's a difficult decision. And to be honest, I don't really know the answer to that. Yeah. Um, if you had to make the decision, Professor, which way do you think you'd end up going? If oh, it was gosh, your decision, you know, if you uh, were Prime Minister? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I could probably tell you now and then change my mind yes. by after lunch. You know, yeah, and that's it, a problem. It is uh, really difficult. I can see... And, you know, I've not seen uh, as much detailed of the modelling as, as presumably the ministers have. But, uh, you know, my inclination is that if we can avoid further restrictive measures, then that would be ideal. But it does depend on whether or not it's likely that we will overwhelm the health service if we don't. And that is a question I don't really know the answer to. All right. Well, you're very frank about that. And that's very nice to hear. That's Paul Hunter, who's professor of medicine at the University of East Anglia. Thanks for joining us. So a study published by the Institute of Tropical Medicine in Antwerp has found that the United Kingdom, oh dear, has one of the worst diets in Europe. Second only to the Swedes, the data suggests most Brits get almost 40% of their daily energy intake from junk food. Tam Fry is the chairman of the National Obesity Forum and joins me now. Tam, you're no stranger to this podcast and we've talked about our diet before. That explains presumably why we've got such a problem with obesity. Absolutely. I mean, we are eating junk food, ultra-processed food, like there was no tomorrow. And uh, that is the, as you correctly say, the basic reason for the obesity problem which we have. And we've got we've got teenagers camp, um, being diagnosed with diabetes. Um, many are already obese, Tam, by the time they even get to secondary school. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, from the year 2000, we started to have even young children in primary school with diabetes. And it's just getting worse and worse. And unfortunately, uh, we are seeing absolutely no action of any consequence from the only people who can do something about it, and that is the government. Well, they put that tax on uh, fizzy drinks, and that did the trick, didn't it? Because a lot of the manufacturers um, re- instantly re- cut down the sugar content of those drinks. 
You're absolutely right to highlight on that. In fact, it was an extremely successful measure, but it's been the only measure in 20 years that the government has done. And I have to remind you that it's not uh, a one-size-fits-all. It's uh, uh, many, many things have got to be done, and uh, it uh, contributes certainly to uh, less obesity, but it certainly uh, is a minor player. The chief medical officer in 2019 at the request of Boris Johnson, um, put in a, a document which uh, she outlined all the measures which need to be taken in obesity, and she said the extension of the sugary drinks industry levy uh, was uh, the, the first thing that she should do. Uh, she was thinking of milkshakes, of coffee, uh, but also extending it to breakfast cereals and all those uh, products which line our supermarket shelves, which uh, have a high sugar content. The report also identifies the fact that a lot of the foods are very low in micronutrients and commonly high in sugar or artificial sweetener, as well as fat and salt. Artificial sweeteners can be a bit of a menace, can't they, Tam? Yes. Uh, I mean, artificial sweeteners are better than uh, sugar, but uh, by no means uh, are, are they... Um, if you will, appropriate. Um, there are natural sweeteners which should be used, in my opinion, but uh, unfortunately they leave a slightly acrid taste in the mouth, therefore sugar has to be added to make them palatable. Uh, but uh, all the ultra-processed food, uh, which is um, full of all these ingredients, actually are stripped of the good nutrients which they may contain uh, during the uh, processing um, operation. Yeah, and I'm just looking here. Um, we, we get 40% of our daily energy intake from processed foods. Go to Italy, where they've got a much more healthy Mediterranean diet. It's only 13%. Absolutely. They follow basically the Mediterranean diet, or should we say the Mediterranean diet is applicable uh, in all these uh, countries surrounding the Mediterranean, and uh, they're plant-based. And that is what we should be aiming for. I'm not sort of sounding the trumpet for vegetarianism or veganism, but certainly uh, we should be eating far more fruit and vegetables than we currently do. And just finally, Tam, I'm just looking at these figures. The 2019 Health Survey for England shows 28% of adults are obese and a further 36% are overweight. Pretty shocking figures. They're shocking figures. But they have been, um, or shocking figures, have been around for a long time. And my real problem with uh, not just the Boris Johnson government, but all the governments in the country since the year 2000, is that these figures have been identifying uh, an obesity epidemic. And the governments have not taken it seriously. And that, I think, is absolutely criminal. Interesting indeed. That's Tam Fry, who is the chairman of the National Obesity Forum. Thanks for joining us. So time to talk sports now. Let's talk sport with uh, Bob Treasure, who is the Daily Mail sports news editor. Oh dear, Bob. Um, I don't know much about cricket, but I do know we've been humiliated in the ashes again. Yeah, it's, um, it looks like it's heading towards a whitewash, Andrew. This is a uh, uh, 275 run defeat, which is probably about Four nil in football terms. And mm. um, after the nine wicket defeat in the first in the uh, first test, and um, yeah, it didn't look much better in this one. So uh, this was, Australia were depleted in this in this test as well. So it's supposed to be the one where we are supposed to put up a good fight and maybe maybe level the series. But 
was not to be pretty pretty grim. Did we, and done. Were, were there any bright spots? Did did anybody perform well with the bat? Well, I mean, so Joe Root with the bat continues to be by far our best player. He averages over fifty. Yeah, he, you know he's hit a couple of half centuries already, but we, he it's his uh, his captaincy is drawing. Uh, he's got question marks over it. He um, the bowling was very poor. And um, people maybe speculating that he's not told bowlers to uh, bowl in the correct way on this wicket, shall we say. And then the, this Australia just plundered tons of runs. So he's a bright spot with the bat, but captaincy, less good. Not good, not good. Now, in football, um, mm. Bob, just finally, Spurs are out from Europe with their clash with Wren forfeited. What's that about? So they, so this is their final group stage game in yeah. the uh, Europa Conference League, which is... Europe's new third tier competition and um, they were supposed to play a couple of weeks ago and Spurs if you remember were the first team to have a COVID outbreak in, yeah. you know, this winter basically so they couldn't play it so they got postponed and um, because it was the final group stage game it was sort of you know quite a lot riding on it to see if they went through or not and um, they've been trying they've been in negotiations with UEFA and Ren to try and get this game replayed at some point they've been given they've offered loads of um days when they can play it they've even tried to move Premier League games in order to get it a slot and Wren just keep coming back and saying no we don't want to play it there we can't do that it's too close to this game whatever and so it's emerged today that they just haven't been able to come to a solution with UEFA and so UEFA have just basically made it a 3-0 defeat for Spurs which knocks them out Oh. And they're not very happy about that. So and apparently, that, um, we're led to believe they're going to seek legal advice about it as well. Because I guess that's a big bo- that's a big blow for their finances because they can make a lot of money if they have a good run in Europe, presumably. Yeah, or, yeah, in theory, yeah. I mean, in, I mean, the competition. I mean, it's as I say, it's a third rate one, so not necessarily count for too much. But yeah, as you say, it's finances, tickets, and they're very keen on that in modern football. And it, and presumably, um, it sounds like they were trying everything possible to get it rescheduled even though it's you know a bit of a direct competition so they the the coach Antonio Conte was clearly keen to get some sort of winning run together for, for his club and hope it could you know it mark his first season there with a trophy even if it is a sort of subpar yeah. one as it were yeah well I suppose a tro- one a, a trophy is better than no trophy I suppose and they're, Indeed, not gonna, yeah. they're, and they're certainly not going to win the Premier League are they uh, no, no, definitely not. <laughs> All right, then. That's uh, that's Bob Treasure, who is the Daily Mail Sports News Editor. Thanks for joining us. So the legend of Robin Hood is inextricably linked to Nottingham. Films, books, cartoons, all painting Robin Hood as being of Nottinghamshire stock. However, a new book reclaiming Robin Hood says that evidence has emerged that actually says the man of legend may actually have been a Yorkshireman. I'm joined by the co-writer of the book, David Clark, who's Associate Professor at Sheffield Hallam University, and he is a folklorist, and he joins me now. David, this is heresy, isn't it? Isn't he, isn't he the man from Nottingham, Sherwood Forest and all that, and now we think he could actually be a Yorkshireman? Well, we don't think that. We know it. Because right. Because the, um, the, the, the actual documentary evidence, that I think if you consult any historian who has studied this subject and yeah. written about it, all, all the early documents, all the early ballads... Re- quite clearly refer to Robin Hood operating in an area known as Barnsdale, which is which is up north of Doncaster, nowhere near Nottingham at all. And the villain has always been, as we all know from films and yes, uh, storytellers, the Sheriff of Nottingham. And the thing is, the idea that somewhere, at one place, actually owns Robin Hood, I just find a very bizarre idea, because... 
don't we all own it? He's an English hero. He is. He belongs to all of us. Therefore, the idea that there should be some conflict between Yorkshire and Nottinghamshire as to who has appropriated him in the modern times, which is what you're talking about yeah. when you're talking about films and TV and that. Yes, we all know that Robin Hood is associated with, with Sherwood Forest. But that is a very modern concept, and there's absolutely nothing to do. There's, there's, no, there's no problem with that. But it doesn't mean to say that that's got any attachment to reality. I mean, the actual boundaries of Nottinghamshire and Yorkshire are modern concepts. They didn't mean anything to anyone in the medieval period because the Sherwood Forest, which now, as we all know, is in Nottinghamshire, actually stretched into Yorkshire. Right. So... So all these all these ideas about he belongs to us and he doesn't belong to to other people. If Robin Hood was here now, assuming he even existed, he'd be laughing. Yeah. And the idea that that um, he belongs to Nottingham really is is a is a victory of public relations. It's got nothing to do with the actual legend itself. You know, Nottingham, and I've got to hand it to them. Have done a fantastic job in sort of making Robin Hood their own. Mm. But yeah. as I've said, he's an English hero. I mean, it's like saying that King Arthur belongs to Tintagel and no one else can have him. Yeah. You know, right. King Arthur, yeah. you know, stories about King Arthur are found all over Britain, you know, in Wales, in even, you know, in, even in parts of Scotland, you know. So the idea that, like, Robin Hood couldn't have been born in Yorkshire mm. operated in what is now present-day Nottinghamshire and, if you listen to West Yorkshire, actually died in Kirklees. Right, and uh, yeah, so 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 if I if I if I was born in Sheffield as I as I was, and I moved to Nottingham and died in Leeds, does that make me a Sheffield lad, a Nottinghamshire lad, or mm. uh, a West Yorkshire lad? Does it matter? He is an English hero. He That's is. That's my view. Now, of course, he was Robin of Loxley, of course, and you in this book you say that um, an ancient marker stone and carved cross discovered behind Loxley Primary School in Sheffield. That's where you oh. get the absolute proof that Robin Hood was born in Yorkshire. No, I'm not saying it. I don't think anyone's saying it's proof. Right. All we're saying is it's it's interesting. Right. And the the actual the actual marker stone could 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 be anything. Um, what what's interesting about it is a very long oral tradition that says that Robin Hood was yeah. born in Loxley, and even the very earliest ballads talk about Loxley. Even if you look at Nottingham's own material, the stuff that they use to promote um, the hero, they talk about him coming from Loxley. Now. If you go to an atlas and you look up Loxley, there is no place name Loxley in Nottinghamshire. The only place name that it could apply to is Loxley, which is in present-day Sheffield. And there are a very, uh, there are some very early um, 16th-century references to um, to someone who called themselves Robin Hood being born in Loxley. And these are these are not just. Um, oral traditions there's an actual um, a land survey that was done for the lord of the manor in 1637 uh, in sheffield where the surveyor was actually taken to a spot which is where you're talking about where this um, near where this stone has been found mm. where he, he was actually told this is where these are the ruins of the house where robin hood was born right now that was that was 1637 long before anything nottingham can produce as to a link with um, with robin hood um so all, all we're saying is there is some um, uh, quite good documentary and oral evidence that um, someone who called themselves Robin Hood um, was born in what is present-day Sheffield. Now, 
Look, the thing about Robin Hood is it, it's like it's like a, a name that was adopted by many, many people all through the Middle Ages. It was almost like a nickname. If you were an outlaw, you called yourself Robin Hood. So in actual fact, there was no single person called Robin Hood. There were many, many dozens of people over a period, many, many centuries, all um, naming their children Robin Hood because he was a legend. So, there's, so it's, it's quite possible for Robin Hoods to have existed in Nottinghamshire, in what is present-day South Yorkshire, and many other parts of England, and all the evidence suggests that was the case. And, and it's, there's talk now, is that, isn't there, uh, David, that there could be a statue uh, of, yes. of going up in Sheffield <coughs> to, uh, of, yeah, Rob, well, of the young Robin? We're hoping so, yeah. Um, all, all we want to do, and we want to work with Nottingham to do this, we're not, we're not trying to say that Nottingham has got no claim on Robin Hood, far from it. We just want to sort of get, uh, produce something in Sheffield that actually um, makes reference to the fact that we, we as a city have a, a, a long um, tra- traditional link with the birth alleged, I'm not saying mm. it was, yeah. the Robin Hood, with yeah. someone who called themselves Robin Hood. And at present, if you come to Sheffield, unlike Nottingham, you'll find precisely nothing. Even at Loxley itself, which right. was if you watch any film about Robin Hood, all the Hollywood films all refer to Robin of Loxley. They certainly do. They so do. surely, surely, if you visit Loxley, it wouldn't. Be, it, why, why can't we have at least a, a sign to sort of link the uh, the village, the current village, with the um, with the outlaw? It'd be brilliant if we could have a statue as well. And we're also talking about having like a silver arrow trail right. um, that people can follow because. If you, if you know that area, um, not very far from Loxley, I think it's only nine miles, over the border into Derbyshire, uh, the, the village of Hathersage, we have the grave of Little John, ah, or what's supposed to be the right. grave of Little yes, John. Right. So, you know, the, the two areas very close to each other. There's a lot of other places called after the two um, outlaws. There's a Robin Hood's cave on Stanage Edge. And we just think it would make a great sort of tourist attraction for for people who are visiting Sheffield who are interested in the legend. Sounds a great idea. And what, when they're leaving Sheffield, they can always head down the M1 and go to the um, the Robin Hood experience at Nottingham. Absolutely. What's not to like? What's not to like? Indeed. That's David Clark, who is the co-author of the book Reclaiming Robin Hood, and a very interesting read it sounds too. That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. Good night.